Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 22. Hello, my name is Aaron Matthew. I'm a biology teacher from Acton Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode on Life of the School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them how they got in the classroom, what they're currently working on, and what their hopes are for the future. In this episode, I speak with Amanda Meyer. Amanda is a biology teacher at the Asia Pacific International School in Seoul, South Korea. Before her move to the international school this year, Amanda taught a variety of science classes, including biology, ecology, anatomy and physiology, and AP biology for 13 years in private and public schools in Minnesota. She was also district technology integration specialist at a previous school in Minnesota, helping students and teachers with digital tools in the classroom. Amanda has won various teaching awards, including the KEYC Golden Apple Award, WEM Outstanding Educator Award, and the Medtronic Foundation Science Teaching Award, and the Fox 9 Super Scientist Award. You can follow her musings about teaching and life in general on Twitter at A. Lynn Meyer. Welcome, Amanda. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, this is uh, this is great. This is I, I am now. I literally feel like we're time traveling now because um, it is Saturday morning in Seoul and it is Friday evening. So uh, you should have your coffee out, and I am almost at uh, beer thirty here um, on a Friday afternoon. Um, so it's just, this is great. If you somebody had told me that like I'd be interviewing people in Seoul when I started this little project, I'd be like, uh, I'm not sure about that. But I uh, thank yeah, you for joining yeah. me. No problem. Yes, the whole uh, time travel thing is still kind of uh, confusing for me on some days. There are still days when I have to Google, like, what time is it in New York? Because I still get confused. And surprisingly, well, maybe not for most of you, but it just amazed me that when we travel back to the United States, um, depending on our connecting flights and things like that, we actually end up arriving back in the States earlier than what we left in Seoul <laughs> because of the time change. Yeah. So it, it is, it is amazing to me. Um, and I under, I understand that it's, 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 um, a crazy world we live in that we are so connected, um, across time and space. Yeah, it was, it was funny because I remember la it was about this time last year, maybe a, ma a month later, may have been in May, when we were on a, a group chat together uh, with uh, David Konofke and, uh, and Paul Anderson, and you had announced that, you know, yep, you were you just sort of finished everything up and you were heading off to South Korea. And I was saying, yeah, I, th I think I'm going to start this, uh, this podcast project. I think we mentioned both of those things to a larger group for the first time. Um, in a, and now here it is, you know, 11 months later and we're, uh, we're chatting. So I'm, I'm excited to hear what your year has been, uh, and the experience you've had over the year. Cause I've been following you on Twitter, but it's going to be great to hear about it. Yeah. And Kanufki always complained about, uh, Paul Anderson and having to do math on, uh, the, um, <laughs> on the time zones. Uh, just imagine if, you know, he tried to do it while Paul traveled the world. <laughs> Yeah, I was just thinking about that uh, Google Hangout we had actually recently, and that was, you know, such a great experience to bring together just a variety of teachers from different places and locations. And I think what you're doing with this podcast and kind of continuing that tradition is is really great. I mean, I'm eager to chat with you, but also I've been listening to all of your other podcasts, and it's really good 
um, professional development for me as a teacher who is now removed from the physical connections to a lot of the teachers I knew back in the United States. And I'm really relying on the technology to be able to keep those relationships going. Well, I will definitely have to get a list of people from you that I should get on because <laughs> I know you were well connected here back in the States. All right. So um, I, I'm going to dive into our first question I like to ask everybody before I get into uh, our side chats and we could reminisce for um, uh, for ages about horizontal transfer. Uh, <laughs> but, but before we get totally sidetracked, uh, how did you become a teacher? What was your pathway into the classroom? Well, like I mentioned, I've listened to a lot of your podcasts already. <laughs> and, you know, my story isn't all that different from a lot of teachers, kind of a a love of science from a very young age. We, I grew up in rural Minnesota. So, you know, I fondly remember trekking out into the woods with my younger brother and having these adventures, doing science projects when I was a little kid, you know, it was kind of always in my blood. Um, but what exactly I wanted to do with that, I wasn't, I wasn't sure, you know, I thought about all the traditional routes, but never really considered teaching. I don't have um, a lot of teachers in my direct family. So it was not something that was naturally, you know, part of my career choices. Um, but I did know I loved biology. So I have a Bachelor of Arts in biology. And during that time, um, I was a teaching assistant for introdu introductory to biology labs. And so I kind of got a taste of it then, graduated with that degree, as I said, and was still kind of unsure what exactly I was going to do. I was living in Minneapolis at the time, newly married, so I needed a job. And there were charter schools in the area that were hiring uh, teaching assistants. So I didn't need a teaching degree to get into a charter school. And uh, ended up with a position in an elementary charter school, which basically uh, was kind of a collecting pot for all of the kids who had gotten kicked out of every other public school in the district and uh, needed a place to go. So I often say to people, you know, I loved that job and it was probably one of the hardest schools I've ever worked in. And if I can still love teaching in that position, I, that's kind of when I figured out that was, that was what I was being called to do. Um, so at that point I knew I needed to get a teaching degree. I went to back to get my uh, master's degree in education so that I could get my licensure at the same time. And at that point, Another really formative um, experience came up for me while I was getting my master's degree. I was also working in a position at the Science Museum of Minnesota, which is in St. Paul. And I was working in a place called the Youth Science Center, which uh, had adults like me working as mentors with groups of students to develop their own exhibits. Um, and of course, with science as a, as a basis for those exhibits. And it really, um, kind of built for me an understanding of using students' interests and students' passions to allow them to kind of take leadership in what they were learning and how they were learning um, to produce a product in the end. And it opened my eyes to ideas, as I said, student-centered learning, project-based learning, even I didn't even know the names of all the, that jargon at that point, but that's when I reflect back on it, that's when I really started to form some of my own personal teaching philosophies. Um, and I was there for three years. We, we worked with um, teachers and educators from the American Museum of Natural History in New York 
and we flew kids up to the Boundary Waters in northern Minnesota to work on projects with fire ecology. I mean, it was just, it was an amazing, amazing experience that I continue to see impacts in my own life. Um, so, I mean, that was my route. Then I got my, my license and started teaching in public schools in St. Paul, um, private schools in St. Paul, and then eventually moved back to my home area of southwestern Minnesota when I started a family with my husband. I have um, two young sons, they're ages 10 and 12, and um, lived in a very small rural town for over 10 years uh, with my family, with my kids, teaching in one school in southwestern Minnesota. Wow. So that your story, and we're going to come back to several of those teaching techniques because I think um, it is sort of a bedrock and you were way ahead of the curve learning those things when in terms of, it sounds like you were NGSS a decade ahead, um, thinking about sort of the, the students students as the doers. But it leads up to the the international move that you did this year. So <clears throat> you're in this fairly rural Minnesota uh, standpoint and and then you have this move to to South Korea like what sparked the international school move yeah it sounds crazy right you yeah. know I was we were very well grounded in the that rural community uh, we lived 30 minutes from my parents and my husband's parents so close family community as well and I would say um, besides our family our neighbors and friends were kind of shocked when we said we're picking up we're leaving we're selling our house mm-hmm. we're selling you know, 90% of our belongings, and we're packing off to Seoul with our kids. Um, but for us and our family, as I said, it was something that was not a surprise. Uh, my husband and I had been talking about traveling internationally since we were first married. We traveled uh, to Guatemala uh, when before we were even married, and then again after we were married, and really kind of um, experienced what that is to go into a different culture and see the world through a different lens. And we knew we wanted that for our children, um, but also we were kind of bitten by the bug. You know, we, we wanted to see more places, see what the world was all about. And we knew that the experience of really not just visiting these places as a tourist, but living as a, as a citizen is, is much more valuable. Um, and as a side note, um, you probably don't know this, and I, I don't speak about this a lot, but my two sons are homeschooled. And so um, we wanted to take that opportunity that we already have with the world as their classroom to an even higher level and to allow them to learn about cultures and places directly um, instead of just seeing them online or studying them in a book. And so I've been planning this for for many years, just waiting until my kids are basically the right age to really be able to learn and absorb um, what the experience had to offer. So again, when we left, my children were nine and 12, and we felt that that was was the right age for that as well. Wow. Yeah, I, I... I, I think of it as such a, it, it had to be something that you had thought about for a while. Cause you know, if, <laughs> cause it's, it is in some regards, uh, either a like radical departure or something coming to fruition, which is much more in line with what you say, you know, uh, lots yeah. of th- thought. And I very much understand what you're talking about. Um, 
you know, uh, we just recently, uh, a couple months ago, took our, our our boys to Europe for a vacation. But it was along the same philosophy. It's it's, you know, there's a degree of a a comfort zone that you take your kids out of the comfort zone, even when you go to this other country, and they realize you know, just from a cultural standpoint, how the rhythms of the day are different. And it's not just the language. It's it's so much more to be into a place that's different. Um, and, uh, you know, I imagine your boys are like mine. My, my boys are amazing travelers. They, they're super resilient. They walk in and there's, you know, they're, there's not, you know, they're hesitant, obviously. They may not speak the language, but they, they rolled with it really well. And, um, there's a huge value to that. And it's not something I experienced when I was small, uh, you know, when I was uh, their age, but it's something that I, I very much understand the parent wanting to provide that opportunity for the kids and the, and the value you get out of that. So, yeah. And, and, you know, a couple more things I'd say about that. Um, for me personally, I was also at a really, like, I would say comfortable place in my, in my teaching. As I said, I'd been at this small rural school for over 10 years and things were going well. You know, I knew my student population really well. I knew all my colleagues really well. I was continually pushing myself, you know, pedagogically trying to, you know, get new ideas into my classroom and, and really learning myself as a teacher. And as you said, I, I had started uh, this part-time position as the district technology integrationist. So I was working with other teachers to help them bring technology into their classroom. So my position was constantly evolving and I was growing as a teacher, but as I said, I, I was just starting to feel so comfortable in what I was doing. I was ready to like shake it up a little bit. Like I needed a big push to really make myself challenged a little bit more. I could, I, I wanted to continue being a learner. Um, and I thought that doing uh, a, a big jump like this or creating a different environment for myself would, would really push me um, to, to take that jump and to, to develop professionally more. And then the second point I wanted to say about taking your family abroad is the other experience I wanted them to have was to be um, the other. Mm. So in my small Southwest Minnesota town, they looked like everybody else. They had the same background experience as everybody else. Um, all the cultural norms were the same. And I think everybody has to have a, an experience in which they um, feel their own, again, un uncomfort in that way. If they feel like they are different from other people in a way, I think that you can learn a lot from that and develop a lot of empathy from that. Um, in fact, my 10-year-old, my um, goes to a few different activities and things at the, the international school that I teach at. And so he's surrounded by um, mostly Korean students. And he has like questions and comments like, well, why is your skin so pale? And your eyes, they're so blue. And, you know, just the, the recognition that um, who you are and how you see the world is not the same everywhere. Um, I think is a really, really good opportunity for for kids and adults, for that matter. Yeah, yeah. It's beyond just the language difference. It's uh, exactly more profound than that. All right. Well, you alluded into it, so I think I'm going to lead into my question about technology. Um, so you had mentioned that technology played a big role uh, in 
in your teaching in the States and even that secondary role that you picked up. Um, and I know that technology is very different in South Korea or my perception, maybe I guess is the better way of phrasing it, um, is that, that technology access and technology availability is different um, in South Korea. So, you know, is technology integration in your teaching any different than it was when you were in Minnesota? Yeah. And, you know, I'm curious to uh, hear about what your perceptions and other people's perceptions are of South Korea. That's always really interesting to me. Um, I think at how technologically advanced Seoul and South Korea actually are. Mm -hmm. um, I had to double check my research on this because people have said this to me, but I was like, you know, I'm a teacher. I'm going to make sure I have good resources. So I double checked this. We do have the uh, most number of people that are connected technologically. Over 90% of Koreans, South Koreans, they usually just refer to themselves as Koreans, yeah. um, are, are online, are connected. Um, so it's, it's amazing. It has been an intentional um, project for the government of Korea to allow their citizens to have this, this connectivity. I mean, you see free Wi-Fi everywhere, mm -hmm. easily accessible in um, the subway, in the buses, every restaurant you go to, all the public spaces in Seoul um, now have free Wi-Fi as of uh, the beginning of 2017. So it's it permeates the culture. And many people probably know Samsung is a, is a South Korean company. So it's kind of part of their identity. Um, so in my classroom, how this kind of plays out is that all of my students are extremely tech savvy um, as far as um, using technology for their socializing and um, also though they're they're studying you know in the united states i would often see that kids knew kind of their own little bubble of of technology but when it came to using it for educational purposes they weren't um, as familiar with that and, and again in my limited experience but here in my school in Seoul, the, the kids pretty much are familiar with everything I throw at them. Mm -hmm. Like I, I'll um, say, well, have you tried this? Have you used this? It, oh, yeah. Yeah, we got it. We got it under. Mm -hmm. We know how to do that. There have been a couple things that I've been able to introduce um, that were new to them, but they picked up on those extremely quickly. Um, so they, they are very tech savvy in general as students. Um, so my approach hasn't changed a whole lot based on their, their, their background and their knowledge. The one thing that's a little bit different for me is my previous school was a school that provided iPads for all students. Mm -hmm. um, and at the school I'm at now, at the high school level, students bring their own devices. So in my classes, typically, that means they're using a cell phone and they're using a laptop. And initially, I was a little bit worried that that was going to be um, a struggle for me as a teacher to adapt to the, their different devices. But honestly, there are so many things now that are web-based as well as having iOS apps and, and Android apps that if, if you are comfortable with technology, you can swing between those platforms um, very easily. And I find that it wasn't a struggle for me. And as I said, the students are very, very flexible as well. So I some days I miss my having iPads in the hands of all my kids, but really the combination of the, the phones with their cameras and then all the connectivity of the, the laptops have gotten us, you know, everywhere we, everywhere we need to be. And 
personally, I think part of that is also that as a teacher, I've moved beyond thinking in the terms of there's this really cool thing I want them to do that either requires an app or a, a web-based program or something. How am I going to use that in my classroom? I, I don't really think that way anymore. And I think a lot of teachers are making this transition. Instead, uh, we see it more as there's this learning goal that I want my students to get to eventually what kind of technology is out there that might help support them? And that means that we're not so um, set in using a particular device or a particular app or a particular program. Instead, it's, this is what I want to do. Now I just need to be aware of all the different choices that are out there to do that and help my students to make some of those choices as well. So if I throw at them, you know, this is where I want you to end up. This is the product I'd like you to make, or this is the, the information I'd like you to gather. They really can round up their own resources and figure out how to do that, whether it involves technology or not. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's the place I kind of am with my students, which means you know, a change in the technological environment doesn't really affect um, the teaching and learning in my classroom. Well, it sounds like you know, a lot of, I mean, we use this term, uh, we use this term digital citizen uh, about, you know, the digital natives rather uh, with the kids. I, I've heard that phrase thrown out for about a decade now about these kids that were going to come in. But I thought your assessment of, of kids in the United States, and the, my experience is very much the same, is that um, there's two buckets of technology. There's the bucket of these are the handful of apps that I use socially, I use my friends, I use in my non-academic life. And then there's some other that's academic. It's whatever the teacher tells me we're going to use. It's, um, oh, yeah, we have to use this platform for this particular thing. But the I don't really think of, of students as digital natives when it comes to academic skills, uh, at least not in my experience. I think it's starting to get there. But I think some of the... Some of the characterization I've heard from uh, from people talking about the tech savviness of students, I have not felt has translated to academic skill. Um, I feel like, yeah, they know how to use those like four apps that they, I mean, if you want them to swap faces on Snapchat, man, they'll, they can do it and they can do it faster than anybody else in the world. But if you want them to gather information, to build a product, to think academically, to assess sources, to assess a website, to assess credibility... Those are things that nobody's really, you know, they've never really thought about that. So they haven't developed those skills. Uh, it sounds like uh, the students that you're you're dealing with are more immersed and therefore it's it's a little bit um, it's a little bit different. There's not two separate buckets like there's just technology and technology is used across the board. So. I would agree with that assessment for sure. And, you know, part of it is a credit to um, the school that I'm teaching at and the focus on technology from the early years, you know, the elementary students use their Chromebooks. Um, the middle school students also have their own laptops, but there are iPads to be checked out. But the teachers um, at the early levels at my school really do do a great job of, of teaching students what all the resources are that are out there. And then, as I said, giving them choice to use and develop you know, kind of their own strategies and their their own preferences. So yeah, the, the first project of the year that I opened up wide for them and I said, you know, here, here are the things that I want to see. 
um, you know, I want to see evidence of your learning. I want to see it, that it's a product you can share with other people. That's that's a big thing for me. It has to be an authentic product. Um, you have to use good resources that you know are high quality content. And I threw that out there to kind of see, you know, where where we ended up. And I was amazed at the skills that the students were bringing in to allow them to do all those things as well. But again, that goes to the credit of the previous teachers, you know, that had worked with them and and really developed those skills. So I don't know if it's so much of a, I mean, part of it's probably a cultural thing. Uh, like I said, that they're immersed in so much technology, but also, you know, to, to show that there is going to be continuing growth in the United States as we continue to integrate that technology thoughtfully at the younger years, you will see that product again in, at the high school level. I, as you said, it's changing. And I think you will continue to see that, that growth at the high school level as there's more and more of a focus on it at the primary and middle school grades. That's that's very hopeful. We'll we'll move off of technology on that because I can get, <laughs> I, I, I I can get jaded about technology and 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 the two boxes because uh, I I think I'm I'm a little impatient with wanting to see that happen. Um, you know, to me mm-hmm. in, in a lot of cases I felt like, you know the and I had this conversation with Chris Baker just the other you know just recently where you know just because someone rolls out technology doesn't mean that it's engaging but there's a set of skills that people can develop during their their academic life to realize how to to build products and how to um, how to use technology as an academic tool to to better understand you know to un- uncover what their thoughts are about you know different ideas um, so it's it's exciting to hear where you are and I'm, I'm hopeful that that's the direction we're going so that's really uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll stay positive on that uh, I, I'll, I'll, tr- I'll try to keep feeding you that hope Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> all right so you said you sort of mentioned earlier and I, I held back a little bit um, you know when you're talking about going to Seoul um, you know you sort of had this uh, tip the apple cart over sort of the way I describe it, you know, like things are sort of comfortable. Um, I, my personal analogy, I, I often say, and I think I actually said it today at lunch. I went out to lunch with a, a colleague of mine. Um, we're on our April break here. So, uh, we weren't just ditching school, uh, but we met up, uh, to, to talk about something. And, um, you know, I often say, you know, like you could take my laptop and you could, if someone stole my laptop and, and destroyed it, you know, like I'd be like, all right, fine. Um, I'll, I'll, yeah, I, I know what I want to do with the kids. The laptop's just this tool. If I couldn't, if there was a rule passed that said I couldn't use any of my stuff from this year, you know, next year, I'd be like, okay, um, and I just roll with it. So there's a part of that conversation you have about wanting to tip over the apple cart. Uh, there's a, a comfort that you can get into, and you can go to the well and use what is convenient at times. What you used last year, which isn't perfect, but it's okay. And it gets the job done, but it it doesn't push you into some new area. And the job is so hard that, you know, there's a balancing act. You can only take on so many new things. So now that you've done this, you tip the apple cart over, you, you know, move to this whole new area. How has moving to Seoul, you know, contributed to your growth as a teacher and a learner? Who are you now that you weren't 10 months ago? Mm, this was a great question, Erin, because I really had to reflect on this one a little bit, um, which is perfect. I mean, that's who we are as learners. <laughs> we're reflectors. Um, well, first of all, I, I want to make sure that um, it, I don't want to make it sound like I'm, I'm completely doing everything differently. That would <laughs> that would actually be really crazy for me. That would um, 
drive me crazy, I guess is what I'm saying. So the school that I'm teaching at is, um, it's an international school, which can mean different things. So I, I just need to qualify that a little bit. My international school that I'm teaching at is a private school, um, which means that people have to pay tuition to go to school here. And it uh, being in Seoul, in order for people in South Korea to go to an international school, that means they had to have lived in another country for it's like three years. So there are some qualifications on the types of students that I have. It can't just be any students coming to school um, at, at this particular school and all, school, all international schools in Seoul. And so my, my population is actually a lot of students who are Korean. They have Korean citizenship, but they lived in another country, typically United States, for a while. Um, some lived in, a, there's a big group that lived in Australia for a while as well. And then I have a few other students from other countries, such as uh, I have some from France, from Swip Switzerland, from Brazil, um, from other couple other South American excuse me countries as well. Um, so that's that's kind of my student population. And then as far as our curriculum goes, we the the kind of the um, uh, basis of what we teach is very similar to an American style school. So we have the traditional um, eight period day, although next year we're moving to blocks. So I'm super excited about that. Um, my students take AP courses. So I'm teaching AP biology, uh, what we call an honors level biology, environmental science. It's all in English. Um, my students are of various levels of English abilities, but all, like I said, all the instruction is expected to happen in English and all the conversations in the classroom are expected to happen in English because many of the parents are sending their students to this school to improve their students' English in hopes that they will eventually go to university in the United States. Mm -hmm. That's that's the um, kind of final goal for many of my students. Um, so a lot of the um, aspects of teaching at APIS is that are very similar to what I experienced in other schools in teaching in the United States. Um, but what is really pushing me, what's very different is what you would expect is that all of my students um, are what we might call in the United States ELL learners, mm -hmm. or um, here they, they call it EAL, um, English as an additional language. Um, so yeah, another acronym mm -hmm. <laughs> for all of you educators out there. So that for me, and I knew this going in, I was really excited about this actually, that for me has been the biggest learning experience um, so far this year is working with, like as I said, a huge variety of students with various English skills from those that you would never know that they didn't uh, grow up in an English speaking home to those who had just come over, like I just had a student who came from China who knew very, very little English whatsoever. Um, so that has really stretched me as a teacher in considering um, how I approach learning with my students. Um, I had a very interesting conversation with our EAL instructor early on who said that um, inquiry learning in general is very challenging for these students because the basis of inquiry is that 
students are supposed to be confused at first. I mean, that's the idea behind inquiry is that you're presenting something that creates confusion in the students and then they uh, ask questions and start to kind of have a motivation for figuring it out, you know, and that can take many different forms. But here you have these students who are already struggling with the language and then you purposely confuse them. And so I haven't stopped using inquiry approaches by any means in my classroom, but it has definitely made me reconsider how I scaffold that inquiry experience for them. And that has definitely been a challenge for me this year, but a, a delightful challenge. I mean, it's been really good conversations with my colleagues about that. Um, a lot of good conversations with students about that, you know, what, what um, helps them with their learning and, and how I can help them. And then also um, more defining of uh, what I use in my classroom for assessment is standards-based assessment. So defining that better because for those students who are learning um, English basically at the same time as they're learning the content, the learning process goes a little more slowly. But again, I have this huge variety of students. And so for other students, they're going through it very quickly. So having a standards-based classroom is really, really helpful for this type of environment because it allows the students who need a little bit more time to take that time to learn to develop. And the students that are able to kind of cruise through the learning faster have the, the time and the ability to do that. And so that part of my growth as a teacher has also expanded because I found various ways to support them better in a standards-based environment. So um, yeah, it, it's a strange, a strange reality when I reflect on it about how much is similar, yeah. but also the, the kind of subtle changes that sometimes you could probably just go through your day-to-day -day teaching and, and continue to teach in the same way without realizing that things are shifting because of the needs of the students. So when you look at standards-based assessment, um, to me that, in, that involves um, students sometimes getting like a second opportunity to show proficiency. Is that, is that, a, is that a fair assessment of how you're doing that? Yeah, yes, on a, on a very basic level, yeah. Students have multiple opportunities to show proficiency. So this makes it sound like, you know, you've got, and I, you know, I know we had mentioned a few different topics here beforehand, you know, this sort of personalized approach uh, to learning. So you, you present a, a larger project idea with certain learning objectives and the students, you know, make their best effort on that. Does this suggest that there's like, a little bit more of a, a feedback cycle to your assessments where students are maybe resubmitting things that are taking, and and it's not just that they're creating personalized projects, but a student's pathway to proficiency is gonna be very different for different students, not only by producing these different products, but also because some students are gonna to need to go and take several attempts in order to demonstrate proficiency. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. You know, I don't, I don't want to get too much into the weeds mm -hmm. with the the day to day of of how this works in my classroom, but I can I can give you a general overview. Um, so, because again, my my students are um, at at different levels, as I said, um, my assessments also come in. Uh, I call them different levels. Um, so. 
we start with, as I said, some sort of some sort of inquiry experience to really, as I say, intentionally get them confused, hook them into the idea. We explore, we kind of weave in the vocabulary to that, weave in the concepts. And at a point where I feel like we've we've kind of gone through enough content in that way, because um, my classroom is also a flipped classroom, so the content presentation is a little different, but we've gone through enough content in that way that I'm ready for what I call the the, the first level of assessment, which is very basic. If you're thinking in terms of Bloom's taxonomy, it's can you remember, can you recall, what's the vocabulary, fill in a diagram. That's the type of assessment I give every student first. Um, very short, very to the point, uh, structured uh, type of assessment. And students are required to retake those assessments until they have 100% proficiency on those. Mm -hmm. um, and that usually happens digitally. So I use digital tools to do that. They are not multiple choice because I wanna make sure the students aren't just guessing, that they actually know the content, but they're, as I said, very kind of bottom level understanding. Um, then we work a little more in class to kind of beef up the, the activities and the conversations and things we're having. Still kind of all students doing the same things, maybe doing some more investigations to dig deeper into the content. And again, when most of the kids are through, all of the kids are through that level two, and most of the kids they feel are ready for kind of the higher order questions, we do the next kind of level of assessment. Um, and that is a completely written uh, scenario-based assessment. So I'm usually giving them data that they're analyzing and applying what they've learned to that in this um, assessment. Or it's, a, like I said, a scenario where they have to explain what's happening based on the content that they've learned. And it's, it's tougher. And this is where I really see my, my uh, students here struggle. They're very good at memorizing, mm -hmm. as a lot of students are, but they're exceptionally good at memorizing uh, here. They, they really want to do well. And so as long as it's kind of straightforward studying and memorizing, they're fine. But then when it comes to that higher order application and analysis, um, that is trickier for them. So that assessment, they are allowed to retake and redo um, not multiple times, a limited number of times to show their proficiency there. And then we wrap it up with the project-based assessment. So they're, they call this the, the final level of assessment where every student is required to do a project that shows uh, their individual connection to or interest in the standards that we just assessed. And as I said, this project has to have a, an audience, an authentic audience of, of some sort. And I have all these other guidelines that that they are supposed to follow for this project. So it ends up being um, four to six major projects throughout the year that shows uh, their understanding of a variety of different standards. Mm -hmm. And then sprinkled in there, those are all my content standards. We have the uh, process, what I call the process standards. So, you know, being able to create a scientific argument, they have assessments on that usually in the form of uh, a claim evidence reasoning mm -hmm. type of written product, um, using scientific models, interpreting scientific models, using mathematics and science. All of those are those process standards that I assess year long through other types of, of things. So back to your original question, it does allow for students to redo and retake as needed, but it also allows them time for them to grow in the complexity of their understanding. Like I, the first time I assess them, I don't expect them to understand 
uh, like for right now, we're, we're working on replication, transcription, and translation. I don't expect them to understand the intricacies of that the first time. I just kind of want to have them know, okay, this is where the nucleotide is. These are the vocabulary words we need to know. And, and just make sure they're all in that ground level first before we fly into uh, a little bit more analytical pieces of yeah. each standard. Interesting. It's a, it's always, I, I find this, this is possibly maybe the geekiest and most fascinating part of these interviews is that, you know, I, I teach in a school where we, we teach 12 units in the year. Every unit ends with a, a test. We got some quizzes like that are formative in there. We do a term project every term. We do a lab report every lab. And we've been doing this for, for years. Um, and it's very traditional. And I feel like, you know, you made this this statement earlier about you can make some subtle changes within structure. You know, like the tests that we give now are very different than the tests we gave, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And the the thoughtfulness with which we 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 think about the questions and the, the skill assessment that we apply in these assessments um, and how critical we are of them and how I have my students reflect on them has even changed this year. But we still are doing this very traditional model. When I hear, when I hear your approach to this, it's, it's this very different approach to it where it's creation at the end, which is, I think, something that is something we highlight a few times a year, but it's not the bread and butter. And so it's, it's, it sends the clear message to my students that, Creation is something we do in these four projects during the year and during these four labs during the year, but we still come back and we core and hit them on the tests throughout the year. Um, and it's uh, it's got advantages and disadvantages to it. Um, I think the disadvantages are fairly obvious, um, uh, but there are also some advantages to doing the assessments that we've we've done. I just don't know how much... I, I, my, my bias on this is that we have so overvalued the test, um, and we have so undervalued the creation and it's been shifting, but it's, it's really fascinating to hear your, your approach on that. Cause it, it definitely flips it, that the creation is the, that's the end goal. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting in, um, the, the school I'm in, which is a smaller microcosm of the larger educational kind of world of soul. Um, so you've probably heard this, or the listeners have probably heard that Korean students are, are known as being very, very sharp students, but they also are, I mean, they, they study like all the time. The traditional mm -hmm. Korean students, they, they go to school uh, for a full day of school, like a normal U.S. student would, maybe even longer than that. And then they have these, what they call academies, after school that can go as late as, oh, the government just put a, a limit on how late they can go. I want to say 11 o'clock at night now is the limit, where they, they study again after school. So the Korean culture is very much, when you are young, your job is to be a student and you study all the time and testing culture like permeates that. Um, I remember it was, oh gosh, what was the time of the year now? It must've been, oh, I think it was like February. Um, we have a, a traditional Korean school near us. And in February is when the big national exam is. And um, that's when seniors, for example, take their exam to see if they're going to be able to get into college that they want. And there's all this super high stress associated with these exams. And, and kids are like 
really, really at their wits end. In fact, um, the rate of suicide in teenagers in Seoul and Korea is the highest in the world because of all this stress that they put on their, their students. Um, so on this exam day, I was just shocked because in the morning, there was like traffic jams all over our area because students were so worried about getting to the exam on time. So they were all taking taxis to make sure they got there on time. So the, the traffic was just unbelievable. And then on the, at the actual entrance to the school, there were kids like handing out treats and playing music and making this big procession for these seniors. And then when I went home at the end of the day, it was dead silent because the parents were all lined up outside the school absolutely quiet with flowers in their hands, pacing the sidewalks, waiting for their students to come out with just, you know, they were jittery and they were nervous. They weren't even talking to each other because there was so so much tension because of this, this exam and yeah. waiting to see how their, their students had done. So all that to say, that's, that's the bigger culture that my students are living in. But then within my school, we, as you can tell, we, we allow for non-traditional assessment. Um, so in a lot of things, not only this, but my students are straddling both worlds. You know, they, they feel this pressure from their culture to be very exam focused. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I, as a teacher, am saying, it's the learning that's important. And if you don't do well on your assessment the first time, I want you to try again and keep learning. And so that's very challenging for my students, um, but they, as in everything, they, they try really hard and mm -hmm. they do their best, which I, which I really love. So I wanted to say that piece about it first. Like, I don't want it to sound like um, teaching internationally by any means is this like wonderful place where everybody can, you know, be crazy in what they do in their classroom and and it's a nirvana of you know assessment and whatever it's it's very tricky to kind of straddle those two worlds and also to add to that i do te teach ap biology so when i talk about these assessments i'm talking about my honors biology class yeah. so my honors biology class is is ninth grade here my ap biology class I still use a lot of the pedagogical tools. So it was still a flipped classroom, still very inquiry-based. I still assess those science practices throughout the whole year, but my tests are tests. You know, <laughs> my assessments are exams and they are modeled after the AP exam and they do a lot of it because yeah. they have to practice. The end goal for AP biology, although I of course want my students to be I want them to love biology and I want them to be creative thinkers and I want them to be curious and all those things. I'm developing all of those, but we also can't forget that they have to take a test in the end, you know? And again, for my students, my Korean students, that exam is very important to them because their ultimate goal is to get into an American university and that AP test is one of their tickets yeah. to do that. And so I have to, prepare them for that exam with practice, practice for that type of assessment. And I think that's only fair to them. Yeah. I, the, the one thing I would, I would say sort of, I don't feel like the worlds are as far apart, particularly with the AP, uh, the direction the NGSS is going with performance expectations. I actually spent a big chunk of when I met for lunch today, that was actually one of the things that we were, we were doing. And I have a colleague who, uh, we teach we teach basically the same schedule for 80 percent of our day, but we have no common time. Um, and so we talk whenever we can. 
but um, we've been talking a lot about our learning objectives and and about that that and we've had this sort of like drive-by conversation going on and before we left for a break he was like well let's have lunch and we'll just sit down and we'll talk and we'll just you know have an hour where it's we can sit down and we can just sort of have this philosophical conversation about these pieces i think that some of these project assessments that you're doing allow um allow students to to apply those science practices in these ways so that they are, as I describe to my students, flexible thinkers. Um, what, I, what I always talk to my, my honor students, even when I'm giving them sort of a traditional test, I give them you know, an experiment on that and I have a handful of follow-up questions. And those inevitably are the ones that students struggle with. Um, I always, uh, we always do this question with Beetle and Tatum, where we give them some of the original Beetle and Tatum work, and we we talk to them about you know this idea, and they've read about Beetle and Tatum and they've they've seen it, but then you give them the data on them and then ask them questions about it, and they can't make heads or tails of this. This is fairly early in the year, and they're very concrete thinkers. They just want to like they want to spit back a number at you, like you know they want to just throw facts at you. But they don't want to necessarily. They haven't been. They haven't developed those academic skills of, of the critical thinking. And when you do projects where students have to ask bigger questions and have to communicate and make those argument, you know, those arguments based off of data, I don't think that that's out of line with being successful as an AP student. Um, with that said, you still want them to be familiar with the format <laughs> so that they're not blown away with the four paragraph question. Um. <laughs> yes, I agree. And I would say that is essential to them being an AP student. You know, they, they have to be able to have that skill. I, I think what we're kind of circling around here is that there is no one good way to do yeah. assessment necessarily. You know, just like you have diverse students, you need to have diverse assessment. I, we, we have to be able to assess them on their, you know, their their analytical skills, on their, as I said, just their plain old like memorization. Do do you have the concepts down? On their ability to create a product, you know, we have to as teachers really be cognizant of what assessment really fits the learning objective. And yeah. if the assessment that fits the learning objective is a standard, you know, ask this question give me the answer. If it's that type of assessment, great. That's what we're getting at. I mean, that's what our goal is. But if the learning objective is something else, maybe there's a different type of assessment that is better for that. So we need to be flexible in, in doing that and more cognizant of understanding how the assessment fits with the learning objective. Yeah, uh, absolutely agreed. All right. So I think we've touched upon a lot of these ideas, but um, and you you gave a little cheer for your change in schedule for next year. So maybe that's part of this. But what are you looking forward to in the in the upcoming years in the classroom? Yeah. So um, my contract here at APIS is two years with a potential extension after that. So mm -hmm. we're still kind of in the process of figuring out how long we'll be here. But in my time in Seoul, um, I, yeah, I am definitely looking forward to the, the change in the schedule next year. But also, um, the, the school is very um, progressive in setting goals as a school of what they, what they want to do and what types of learning they want to see. So uh, last year, before I was even here, the admin decided that two of their goals for moving the school forward to, were to increase... Um, like student contact through like an advisory or homeroom 
um, program, which I was very familiar with with my experience in the States. And their second goal is to increase personalized learning. And so they took a few of us teachers in the fall on a trip to Singapore, and we visited a couple international schools there to see how they were incorporating those two things into their uh, school settings. And then from there, the task was given to us to kind of round up a group of teachers to start thinking about what that would look like at our school. So I am uh, heading a task force right now on personalized learning. And we started with uh, book reads and research and just conversations among this, this small group of teachers, thinking about number one, what is it? Because personalized learning, if you say that, it means 10 different things to 10 different people. Um, so we had to define it, but then also what would it look like at our school and then setting some goals where we're gonna be presenting to our administration in May about what we would like to see happen at our school and then kicking off some initiatives next year. Um, and this is all teacher kind of driven given the kind of the challenge from the, from the admin, the initial challenge. Mm -hmm. So I'm really excited to see how that's going to develop. And I've got some really energetic teachers that I'm working with um, to see that project through. So, so that's really exciting. Um, also, as I kind of mentioned earlier, it's a little bit tricky here to maintain the connections with other science teachers, mm -hmm. um, physically maintain them. Like, I feel like I, I had a really strong PLN when I was living in the United States, and I can continue to foster that here very easily. But with all the upheaval that we've had in this year, I've kind of in my opinion, I've kind of fallen off the map a little bit in my connections to my PLN. So my first goal is to kind of um, get back into that again, trying to um, reach out to other teachers in the US that I already have these connections to. Surprisingly, the time change is, is, is a big obstacle. I thought, oh, we have all this technology and the technology will help me to do that. But, you know, all the Twitter chats are like at a weird time and, yeah. you know, I, I get a message from someone in the United States. It's the middle of the night here and I can't get back to them until I wake up and, you know, probably get done with school and, you know, can, can reply to those messages. So, but the time delay creates some interesting problems and I'm working on that. I'm, 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 I'm going to, you know, get through those issues now that things have settled down a little bit here. But my second goal related to that is there are all sorts of international science teachers here in Seoul. I mean, there are many international schools um, and in South Korea for that matter. And I met a few of them uh, when my students participated in the Science Olympiad uh, this okay. winter. And I started collecting names, email addresses and names. And so what I'm gonna do with that, what I've already done, and this will sound familiar to you, is I set up a Slack channel. <laughs> yeah. Um, so kind of like for a horizontal cha uh, transfer, we had a, a Slack channel where we had some great conversations. And so I'm setting up a Slack channel just for international teachers in Seoul. I'm going to start adding those names that I've been collecting to that Slack channel with their, you know, their, their permission, of course. And um, they've already said they're interested. So I'm feeling good there. Start those conversations with a group of science teachers here and see where it leads. What, what I would really like the eventual product to be um, is to do something, some sort of monthly or semi, I don't know, maybe twice a year, whatever works, the teachers actually come together and share ideas. I know on a recent podcast, you were talking with one of your teachers about ed camps. Mm -hmm. And I really miss 
ed camps. Uh, I did those quite a bit when I was in the United States. So I can envision like an international science teachers ed camp happening as a result of that, where we all get together and we share ideas about, you know, teaching science in an international setting. I think we have a lot of really great things to share. I mean, something as simple as like, how do you order preserved specimens for a dissection in South Korea? I mean, it's, there's all these challenges that are unique to teaching internationally yeah. um, that I think we could share with each other. And as I said, I really miss having that close connection to other science teachers. So I, that's something I'm, I'm looking at developing for the next year. Wow. So nothing ambitious. Yeah, <laughs> it sounds big, but it really is not that hard, honestly. You know, making Slack channel, throwing some people in there, organically seeing where it goes. Yeah. That's, that's the small stuff. That's good. All right. So when you're, when you're not teaching and you're not uh, organizing the international school science teacher movement, <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, what do you like to do? Uh, well, we live in an amazing city. Yeah. <laughs> so as I said, we were in a very rural community. So a lot of our time now is just spent, you know, exploring our new city. There's beautiful parks and temples and museums and amazing things right here in Seoul. Uh, so we're getting out quite often on the trains, on the, on the buses, on our bikes, um, seeing the city and enjoying the people. And we've taken a few longer trips as well. Uh, there's an island that's just south of South Korea that we recently went to um, and spent some time exploring that island. We went skiing in the winter in the mountains yeah. that are just east of here. In fact, we're, we are hoping, fingers crossed, that we are going to get uh, tickets to the Olympics that are going to be here next winter. Mm -hmm. um, we are... Uh, my husband is more of a sports fan than I am, but you know we feel like the Olympics being here, we need to take advantage of that. So we we are on the list to go and see curling at oh. the Olympics next winter. Hopefully we'll get there's like a lottery system, so hopefully we'll get uh, accepted for that. So just just getting out and exploring and really immersing ourselves in the culture, trying to learn the Korean language. Um, yeah. So I go as as often as I can. Our school provides uh, once a week lessons on Korean language. So we're trying to learn that as a family. Um, other things we do as a family, we're a big board gaming family. So we brought a whole bunch of board games over. There's a board gaming community here that we interact with quite a bit. And then um, finally, I do a lot of science at home with my kids. So that's yeah. a really enjoyable part of my uh, life is that I get to be my kids' science teacher. Um, so we spend a lot of time doing that and reading together as well as a family. And then individually, of course, we're all reading. Speaking of which, I'm reading a really good book right now that maybe you've read. Um, and I want to make sure that I shout this out to science teachers out there because it's been there for a while. It's the I Contain Multitudes uh, book about the, like the microbiome. It's fascinating. I, I am reading it as well. I'm about, I started oh, it just a couple perfect. of days ago. I'm about 15% through it right now. I just started that in the middle of this break. Yeah, it's been on my to-read list by Ed Young uh, this whole time. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, it's got a great, like the intro is super, it's amazing history. Uh, like, yes, and, and his writing is just captivating. I yeah. think he does a really good job of like taking the complexities of of microbiology and making it really, really clear and interesting. I mean, yeah. 
to 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 make <laughs> to make some of those topics as interesting as he does. I think he's an excellent writer. So yeah. yeah, I'm really enjoying reading that book right now. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a painfully slow reader, uh, and I am known to read at night before I go to bed, and I'm usually dead tired, so I get to the bed and I yeah. read like three pages, four pages and fall asleep. So I've read a little bit more the last couple of days, but yeah, it's it's a great. It's also you know that like. This is like sweet talk for me because microbiome is like right up my alley. So that's, you know, this is my, if I could teach the whole year as the microbiome, um, I would, uh, I, am sure some, no. of, some of my, some of my students might tell you, my AP students might tell you, I teach the whole year as the microbiome, uh, <laughs> because we, we I do. think that's great though. Yeah. I think that's an area that's underappreciated by students really, you know, yeah. the complexities <laughs> of that and then the biotechnology applications of it yeah. as well. You know, that's. I think we're going more and more in that direction as a as a science in general. So, yeah, it's great. Yeah, I got the samples ready. I've got uh, my kids' modified microbiome uh, fruit flies uh, this winter, and um, unfortunately, we sort of ran out of time. So normally, what we do is we pluck uh, the colonies off of the differential plates, and then we run PCR um, for 16s. We run them gels, and then we send those off for sequencing. Um, and so last year we did the whole cycle, and this year um, our PCR didn't work. Like we just didn't get good bands, and so yeah. but we were kind of out of time, and we kind of got compressed. So I have all of the plates parafilmed and in the fridge. Uh, and I told the kids, "All right, as soon as the AP's done, I'm gonna pull the plates out. We'll pluck those colonies. We'll run. We'll get some fresh tack. We'll run rerun the PCR." So that's. That is on my to-do list. Mid mid May, I'll be uh, probably like. So I said, this is gonna come out right on AP Bio Day. So I'd say, you know, between this and my next episode, I will I will be doing some PCR with microbiome stuff. So. Oh, I look forward to hearing about that. Yeah. I have to ask, what what protocol did you use to change the microbiome? <clears throat> so um so. So I, uh, I, this is something I came up with on my own um, as a result of, uh, I did a, the American Association of Immunologists does a fellowship um, uh, program, and I had applied for that and got that a few years ago. And they basically team you up as a science teacher with a lab. So I went into a fruit fly lab um, for the summer, and I, wa I worked in um, Dr. Neil Silverman's lab, which is in, uh, at UMass Worcester, which is very close to where I live. It's actually across the street from where my wife works. Um, so uh, I went in for the summer. I, my boys got booked in camps for that whole summer. Uh, <laughs> and I went into lab. And during that time, I basically worked out protocols for sort of how do you collect um, platable bacteria from uh, lab-reared flies. And then how do you perturb the microbiome of that? And I really could not, my original goal was I wanted to knock down the micro, I want to knock down the microbiome and then either use probiotics or um, some sort of possible pathogen to challenge them afterwards. But man, it's really hard to knock down the microbiome and still get flies that look like flies. Um, you can. And so like if you rear them on like a mixture of a couple different type, types of antibiotics, you'll get flies, but they are the sickliest little slow developing flies. Um, a lot of the stuff that Ed Young talked about, like the, what happens if you rear, you know, these anexic flies, these flies that don't have a microbiome, um, they're sickly. They don't develop right. Um, but I couldn't get some of that to translate into the high school. Um, I can't make flies that are absent of a microbiome. We just don't have the clean room in high school to do that. Um, I learned how to do it, and I was like, yep. I was like halfway through learning the protocol. I was like, yep, this is never happening in the high school. Uh, so I spent that like entire summer 
failing at science or as I like to say, doing science, um, <laughs> trying to do this, this idea where I was going to, you know, model C diff or do something like that. And it just totally didn't work. And so then what I did, I just had the kids sort of document the microbiome the next year. So I just said, all right, here's a bunch of different flies and we're going to raise them on different types of food. And I want you to document what, how the microbiome is different. And so then this year I changed it around. I said, all right, I raised up flies on regular media and I ground them up and I showed them to the kids and I said, all right, so here's your challenge. You're going to find some food that you think might disturb the microbiome. And then you're going to, then you're going to set up the two food stocks, a control and a regular one. And then you're going to make all these different, we'll make all these differential plates. You'll divide them in half and you'll put normal microbiome on one side, change on the other. And so every group, uh, and we ran three sections of AP biology, every group got to pick their own. So I had a couple groups did yogurt. I had a couple groups that did, um, you know, fairly similar stuff, but I also had some weird ones. I had this group that did basil, um, and apparently there's some oil that disrupts a whole group of microbiome, you know, m microbes that are common in the microbiome. And the basil totally, like totally shifted it. One of the plates you had completely different microbiome on that. So, yeah, that was that's what they worked on. And they got they, this year was really successful. Turning it over is sort of what you said before. Turn it over to the kids. Let the kids figure it out. And they came up with really, really cool stuff. So um, I think my long term goal here is get the sequenceable data start building a database this and then we'll do some we do some blast stuff like we blasted last year's data so the kids will learn blast from the sequenceable data so this is my arc to teach you know everything from model organisms to um to a little microbiology techniques to pcr to gel electrophoresis to sequencing to blast that's how i teach this to ap bio is with this project i think long term i would love to get into um doing some stuff with big data and some data sequencing and then maybe get some long-term trends and then get in, you know, I think I have this sort of back of the mind fantasy that five years from now I'll be, I'll know enough programming to talk about some of the, you know, why do, why is it, why do we talk about computational biology? Why do, why do they want microbiologists to learn R um, and that sort of thing. Um, so I think that's sort of my long-term goals um, in running my own, microbial lab that I run <laughs> with my AP students. Oh, that just sounds amazing. And you were giving me a hard time earlier about my big <laughs> goals and dreams. I think, you know, if, if you're not dreaming big as a teacher, you know, you may want to reconsider what you're doing and, and where you are. That that just sounds amazing. Yeah. And it's, I'll, I'll look forward to hearing yeah. And so it's like, you know, it's funny. It's like one of those passion project type things. I think, you know, every time you talk to somebody uh, about what they do, if if they have a passion project, this little side project, um, you know, I as I said, I could literally start my school year. And this is what the AP students, I could start my school year with this. I could build a whole curriculum. I could do every big idea, every science practice with that and just like grind the kids through this thing. I think they'd get tired of it. So it's it's just like just the right amount of like torture for them to do this but the kids you know the kids have responded really well and the feedback's been really positive and um i made i got really good feedback about what was clear and what was not clear from year one and then made a handful of changes from that um, i'll be curious to see what their feedback is this year um but their feedback so far i mean the, when i did their mid-year check-in we hadn't even done the 
the differential plates, the kids were like super excited about seeing where we were going. They had just done the background research and set the food up, but they were like all the, like it made, I would say half of my students put it in there. Like the favorite things they had done so far this year was this microbiome project. And I was like, we haven't even done it yet. Like, <laughs> like all we set up was the flies, but they were, they were excited about it. So that was that very cool. So I don't know if I want to open it up and ask yeah. you if you have any questions for me, because you just did. Uh, <laughs> do, you have any, do, you have any, do you have any other questions for me before you terrify uh, my listeners with your pick of the week? Um. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. Drum roll, please. No, it's not that bad. Well, yeah, I do have a question I wanted to ask you that I was thinking of, because we kind of come from a similar place in our... Um, maybe perhaps some people might say addiction to podcasts. So, um, cause that's where we met yeah. was through a podcast and here we are doing a podcast. Um, so I am always on the look for, um, more quality education podcasts. And I've been through many, um, have come and gone. There are very few that I would say are consistently ones that I listen to. Um, I, I have a lot of other genres of podcasts that I stick with that I love, but specifically education podcasts I find um, are harder for me to really latch onto. So I'm really putting you on the spot here. <laughs> do you have any? Do you have any favorites now that horizontal transfer is gone? Yeah, I'm. I'm thinking about. I mean, what you're saying here about educational podcasts is is completely right. Um, and I have not been inspired by a lot of what you would call education podcasts. I think the only one that is in my feed right now that I have, and it's not one that's put out super regularly. Um, it, I don't know if you know the Hack Learning podcast. Um, yes, yes. And so that's that's the only one. And I've one. read some of their publications. Yeah, and that, they came up with uh, there. And I think I did what I normally do, which is I discovered them. They were probably, he was probably like 50 podcasts in, and then I back cataloged him. And I went and listened to all the first <laughs> in there. And he puts out like one or two a month um, on that. And then... I do not see, and now now that I'm looking through, I, I'm looking at a couple of my other education podcasts that I I have in here, and they a couple of them have faded. Um, you know, 2016 was I, you know, a couple of 2016 ones where nothing that has been putting out recently. Um, so yeah, that's the so for I guess all the all the listeners out there that we've just you know opened up a a yeah. huge hole in the podcast world, right? Yeah. We need people to, to fill that up. I think you know, part of it is, and, and, and for me anyway, in listening to podcasts, they're either too focused. So they're, you know, it's like, um, I'm thinking of some podcasts that are all like about tech, like mm, ed tech, yeah. and that's all they are. And it's like, I, I can listen to a couple of those that are really interesting, specific to what I want to do, but then I, I just can't listen to an ed tech podcast every week. Yeah. You know, it just... It, it, you know, it's just, it's not, it's not fulfilling all those things I'm looking for from a podcast. So yeah, I, I think there's a real need for um, some, well, kind of like what you're doing, just more conversation <laughs> about education and, and not so much specificity in a tool or an approach or a, a, a type of pedagogy, you know, just yeah. who are we as teachers and what do we want? Well, I think that's one of the reasons, that, and I and I, I brought them up on so many different episodes. But the the Vincent Racaniello, and I, I you know, I'm going to say he's an education podcaster because he does the This Week in Virology, This yeah. Week in Microbiology. Um, 
you know, where he's a virologist, but he's a little teacher. I mean, you can go and see his video series on virology on YouTube or on other sources. He has all of those, but that's just what he does. He has, I, I would say, I've been strongly shaped by the conversations he has with people about, you know, those articles. And I, I agree with you. They're not one note. Um, they, they shift because they bring different people into the conversation every week. Um, and then they have these conversations about it. They, they had this one, um, you know, and not to show my like geekiness out too bad, but they did, they had this, uh, computational biologist who studies the microbiome on, and they like, they had intended to bring him in to talk about his article. And they went on this total sub, like this total side tangent of just talking about like the importance of computational biology and, and computational thinking in biology. And like they never got to the paper, <laughs> but they had this like round table of their like three or four regulars and this guy who came in and they just sort of went off on this side conversation. But just as you said, it's a conversation. So it, there was a back and forth and and people chiming in with different ideas and asking questions and and looking for clarification on things. And I think for me, I get so much out of those podcasts that to me, they're educational. I think they come from the spirit of education because even though the, the people who are on it are PhDs and lab researchers, they come at it from a, a position of, of, of curiosity. Um, and to me, that's what we are. We're learners. And so maybe you should, the question should be, what are not the podcasts that are just about teaching? Because teaching really isn't just a thing. It's what are the podcasts that are about learning? Um, and I don't want a podcast that tells me, like, I, I don't want it to be a lecture. I want it to be something I learn about. Um, and I always learn from I that. love that. So. You, you just opened my mind to something <laughs> new. That, that's a great way to think about it. Because when I think about the other podcasts that I listened to, as you were saying, um, that I would not necessarily call education podcasts, that's why I love them. It's because I always learn something from them. Yeah, radio So. Yeah, Radio Lab, exactly. Yeah. This American Life, Freakonomics, yeah. you know, those are all ones that are helping me to continue being a learner, which in the end is what being a good teacher is all about. So I think you hit the nail on the head there. Yeah, you get excited. You get excited about something for your kids. Yeah. Oh. All right. All right. So now uh, scare everyone. And I, I can only say this for me because I listened to this as I was going through and making sure all of my uh, all of my emails were set to having uh, two-step verification only to hear, <laughs> only to get done just around the time that they pointed out that all of the person who was people the person who was talking about this had that on his his email. So go ahead, tell us about your pick of the episode. Yeah, yeah, people are really wondering what we're talking about now. We've we've set them up with being terrified and and something with two-step verification. This is actually related to podcasts. Yeah. We could talk about podcasts forever. So um, I listen to a podcast called Reply All, mm -hmm. which I'm sure. Many any other people do, and it sounds like you do as well. It's just, it's just kind of all about the, they say loosely, it's all about the internet and their episodes going crazy directions. Um, and I love it because I always learn something. And they had a recent one called The Rus Russian Passenger because one of the, uh, he was a producer on the show, mm -hmm. um, started getting emails from his Uber account. I think it was emails from his Uber account or messages, whatever, saying that he had taken uh, an Uber ride in Russia somewhere. And he's like, I haven't been to Russia. I haven't been using my Uber account in Russia. So they went down this rabbit hole 
to try to figure out what was going on. And to make a long story short, because it's actually a two, have you listened to the second episode? Yet I have not it? listened to the second. I'm oh, have to go back they, and they, come, they come, yeah, they come back and they try to give more answers on what's going on. Okay. But in this rabbit hole that they, they eventually go down, one of the things um, they started to help me realize was that your, your Gmail, for me, my Gmail, but I guess your any email is so easily hijacked. Um, and as a person who uses a lot of technology, as, as you said, this is really frightening. Um, and so you can go online. This is my kind of tip. They gave this website uh, that is um, managed by this guy from Australia who has computer background. It's called, I got to look at my notes to make sure I get it exactly. It's have I been, and it'd be pronounced pwned, but it's from all you video gamers out there know this. My <laughs> husband knew this right away. So it's spelled P-W-N-E-D, and I'm sure Aaron will put it in the notes. Yep. So haveibeenpwned.com. You put in your email address, and you can see in a matter of seconds, like how many times it's been basically hacked into, like how many times somebody has gotten your email credentials through an external site like Tumblr or Facebook or some other site that you're using your email through. Um, and so I was like freaked out when I, I would say freaked out. I'm not a person who gets freaked out easily, but I was, I was like a little bit nervous. Um, I do use one password um, for all of my logins that I use, but so I'm kind of cautious about this to begin with, but I wanted to know. So I went in, I put in my email address, my Gmail address, and I had zero um, problems with it, which I was so happy, I was so relieved. But then I thought, well, I'm going to try my husband's email account because he has so much junk email that he's getting from all over the place. I'm like, oh, man, he's probably got issues. Sure enough, there were two or three, I can't remember now off the top of my head, instances of his email account having been hacked. And if you want to know the actual like um, associated, like was it Tumblr that was hacked or was it you know, Facebook that was hacked or whatever, you have to actually pay a subscription fee to figure that out through this website. But it just gives you a good idea of whether or not your email has been compromised, mm -hmm. right? So I told him, I said, you probably want to think about, you know, changing your password or start using a different email account or something because somebody out there has information uh, on your email account. So just a little bit of, you know, as they call it, digital hygiene. Yeah. You know, double check that, that you're, being cautious with your personal information. Yeah, and just as a, a little service announcement, you said you use one password, and that is the service one password, not that you use yes. a single password. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, as you said it, I like was nodding along the one password, which is a is a password manager uh, that you use, which allows you to uh, randomize your passwords that you put in there. Not that you use one password, uh, <laughs> you know, password one two three on all your accounts. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. good good catch, Aaron. I, otherwise, I just announced to the yeah. the world. That the one password I use is the same on yes. all of my accounts. Yeah. No, and I do love the service, the one password service. It's it's great. Yeah. Um, yeah. it's a little uh, bit of a headache to get started. Yeah, you but gotta... once you get it going, it's really nice. Yeah, it's always been on that. That's always sort of been on my like projects list. I, I I mix up my email my email passwords and they're pretty good. But I think they they point out even for those of you who think and I think of myself as fairly savvy. 
they they do bring up some interesting points in the episode about whether or not you should be a little more savvy or maybe move to a password manager, which I think is probably, even though there's a little headache with setting it up, maybe worth your time to do. All right. So my pick of the episode, I have actually committed to what I'm going to do for summer PD. <laughs> um, actually, I have a third thing on here, but I don't really know any information. So I need to get more detail from David Kanufke because he told me I'm coming down to Long Island for a couple of days. Uh, so... <laughs> which I'm excited about, but I only have it blocked off on the calendar. Um, but uh, apparently Paul is coming out to do an NGSS workshop. And I that's, that you now have all of the information I have. It's Paul Anderson, David Konefke, Long Island, Stony Brook, NGSS. Uh, so I didn't put a link in there because I don't have one for them, but uh, I'll post that in a future episode. But uh, for my summer workshop, yeah, that's... That's all the information you need. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty much what I told them. I was like, all right, cool, I'm in. Um, I'm in. Yeah, uh, but for the two things that I've officially signed up for, um, uh, NABT, uh, BSCS does AP Biology Teacher Academies during the summer. Uh, and our former horizontal transfer uh, friend, Chi Klein, is running one at her school in Florida, uh, along with... Um uh, Robin Valeri, who is a former guest on my uh, on my podcast. Um, and so I had been thinking actually about uh, going back and doing another AP bio sort of teacher summer thing anyway. And the fact that they both brought it up within this past year. Um, and I went to my district and said, hey, I was thinking about going to a workshop for AP. Would you guys cover the fee? And they're like, sure. So my, my school district stepped up big time. I cannot thank them enough. Um, and they picked that up. And they also had agreed to pick up uh, me going down to John Hopkins to a three-day Pogle workshop. So um, I have heard a lot about Pogle. I have the books. I have heard so many people say wonderful things about it. And every time I open it up, I go, I need somebody to sit down and show me how this works. So um, I will be going to the NABT BSCS AP Biology Teacher Workshop or Teacher Academy uh, the last week of June down in uh, Florida um, on the Gulf Coast. And then I'll be going to Pogel Workshop in the middle of July um, down in John Hopkins. So I think there's spots still available on both of them. Hopefully when the episode comes out, there'll be a spot or two left. But I figured I'd share. That's This is the time of year where I make those picks. Um, and that's what I've decided to do. I'm I'm very envious. Those are just the types of experiences I would like to have. It's just it's a little tricky. Again, I'm finding yeah. in my first year here of coordinating your summer PD when you're abroad. Um, most teachers that teach internationally go back to the states for a little bit of time in the summer, so we will be doing that. But it's a very small window. It's four weeks, and yeah. so to try to fit PD within that time is is a little tricky. In fact, there was a Pogel workshop in Minneapolis that I was looking to go to and it starts the day after we return back to oh. Korea. So I was oh it was so frustrating. But I will I will be better coordinated at, at getting that done next year and try to figure out how to fit that summer PD into my into my trip home. Because I feel every year that I've been a teacher, I've done at least one thing in the summer to continue my learning. I feel that is so very, very important. And to spend time uh, talking AP with Chi is going to be invaluable. Like I said, I'm so envious because she is just an amazing person. And it sounds like her um, teacher creds are unbelievable. So it would be great. You, I tell you what, that group, the, the again, I saw Robin uh, present at uh, the NSTA conference a few weeks ago. Um, and she presented with Valerie May. Who's and Valerie is also on that grouping. There, there's a they have like a an all star group running for that, and there's a couple other really good 
AP Bio. I mean, that group. When you're when you're thinking about next year, take a look at that NABT link for the summer because I tell you what, that I was checking them all out, um, and there are several workshops where you look and you go, "Wow, who? These are the people who are running this. These are the credentialed people." Um, so, yeah, I think it'll be good. Um, I have enough connection with that particular group that I feel like those burning questions that I have afterwards, I'm gonna have no hesitation pestering them and I can pester different people about different things, which will be awesome. Uh, so, um, yeah, I'm excited and, uh, I agree with you. I, I have found that, you know, there's some summers that I went overboard and I went and did like three and four different things and it's just, it's just too much. Um, but I think that one to two is like just the right number because I'm going to have my goals and things I want to work on. And then I'm going to go get these other things, which will add the perspective and I should be able to blend them in and, and have some positive things as a result. So, but. And you're going to uh, share everything you learn yeah. somehow via yeah. your podcast or through Twitter or something, right? Oh, so that all of us who are not experiencing <laughs> can learn through you, right? Yeah, I'll be tweeting through the whole thing. And then, you know, I'll make sure, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just say this right now. I'll get Valerie doesn't listen, I don't think. So we'll, uh, Valerie May and during the summer, I'll have her on and have her just recap the whole week. Uh, so, yeah, I will Great. definitely hopefully make. I mean, this is how I make a lot of my connections. Uh, for the podcast are people who I've met at past workshops. So um, that is definitely part of my intention is to come back and, and do, um, you know, as I said, I've committed to doing it for the year. I probably will put some episodes out this summer and then we'll have to decide. You've now made it sound pretty clearly that I, I'm not allowed to quit anytime soon. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm holding you accountable. <laughs> All right. Well, Amanda, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, this has been a great talk and uh, I, I, I can't believe that we did this in separate days, um, but I've kept you well long enough. I mean, it's eight o'clock Friday. It's, <laughs> it's, I have no, I said nine, nine in the morning, nine in the morning in Seoul. I was going to try to do the math and I was going to totally fail. Yeah, I told you. It's <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let me give my, uh, my credits. Uh, music for this and every episode is provided by Jank Jenkins and X Magicians. You can download this on uh, Stitcher, SoundCloud, any place that podcasts are available. You can get show notes on lifeofthesschool.org. Uh, you can also reach out to me at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School, uh, both on uh, Twitter or uh, Amanda, which is A. Lynn Meyer at A. Lynn Meyer. Is that correct? That is correct. Um, if you want to follow up with Amanda directly on Twitter. So thank you again, Amanda, for joining me. And I will talk to everybody soon. <laughs> <laughs>